You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Amen. So we are in our parable series. And uh, if you've been here for a little bit, it's been, I think, three or so weeks now of it. And I love the parables. It is like uh, swimming in the shallow end of the pool and the deep end of the pool at the same time, right? My kids get it. And like scholars write dozens of books about these things. So it's, it's this interesting mix of like shallow and deep, complex. It's, it's wonderful. And uh, Rodney talked a little bit in the uh, first of this series about what parables are, what we can expect when we come to them. And I just want to say a couple more things uh, about that. So par- a, a parable is a, is a genre of literature in the Bible, right? So you got a, apocalyptic literature, you got... You got poetry, you got history, you got parables. There's a, there's a, uh, a, thi- a certain thing that parables are doing that other parts of your Bible aren't doing. Uh, there's certain rules that they follow uh, that other parts of the Bible don't follow. So, uh, for, for instance, uh, when you come to a parable, parables are almost always going to be really simple stories, right? So it's not brain surgery. It's a guy took this bucket over there, the end, right? It's, it's simple, right? Uh, they're really um, tactile, like earthy stories. So uh, it's not necessarily uh, very th- uh, theological in the clouds per se, but it's like real life things, sheep and goats and coins and vines and castles and, and, and slaves. And it's th- those types of things, real people on earth doing real things. Like that is a normal thing that you can expect when you're uh, reading the parables. And another feature that makes Jesus's parables unique is that almost every time when we're hearing one of these, they have a glitch in them. You know what I mean by that? Like, uh, like you're hearing a story unfold and it's very normal and ordinary and routine and expected and bam, guy's head falls off, right? That doesn't happen in any of the parables, but you, you feel me, right? You, you don't... Uh, you don't see something coming and it comes and you're like, whoa, that wasn't, that didn't sit right. That, that shouldn't be in here. It doesn't fit. And, uh, example, uh, the Good Samaritan, right? The hero in the story is the bad guy, right? The, the Good Samaritan, the guy that nobody likes, he's, he's the hero. Or the, um, uh, the parable of the two sons, the, the prodigal son story, right? You get, you get this uh, ancient Near East wealthy father like running after his boy like that would never happen you're reading it you're like that feels weird to me that shouldn't happen it's a glitch in the story parables are stories that glitch does that make sense so that's one of the features that we can expect when we read these and that makes us feel weird right like, my, this is my wife's worst nightmare. Like, we went to see, a few years ago, uh, Avengers Infinity War. And we're sitting in the background, we're having the best time of our life. It's amazing. You, you know, everybody's destroying everybody, and the, the good guys are winning. And then the last scene happens, and Thanos snaps his finger, and half of the universe dies. And it just ends with him, you know, just smiling, sitting on a rock, and the credits roll. And Kelly looks over at me, and she says, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and we walked out. That was it. That was the end of the movie. She hates it to this day. She won't watch it again. But we, we don't like it. It's distressing, right? It's troubling when how we expected it to go, it doesn't go that way. It disturbs and upsets us. And that's actually one of the functions of what parables are doing. It, that's on purpose. It's a teaching method. It's a didactic method to cause us to do what? To rethink what we thought was true. To rethink what we thought we knew. 
That's, that's what parables are doing. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen today. Jesus is on his way, to, just for some context, to Jerusalem. He's in between Galilee and Samaria, and he's got a crowd around him, as he tends to have, right? So he's got his disciples there. He's got some folks he's healed there. He's got uh, some Pharisees in the audience, and he starts teaching. And he's talking about all sorts of things. He's talking about his returning. He's uh, teaching about prayer. And at at one point, uh, he starts telling some parables. Now, he's not just saying these stories generally. He has an audience in mind. In fact, Luke is kind enough to tell us that Jesus is targeting certain folks in the crowd. So look at verse 9. He says this. He also, Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So I'm super thankful to Luke here. Sometimes you got to play a guessing game with like what's going on. Luke, Luke doesn't do that. He's like, hey, let me just tell you exactly what's going on right now. And what's going on is Jesus is telling us, uh, or Luke is telling us up front that Jesus is talking to a specific group of people, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we know out the gate who this is for, right? We know what button he's about to push. He's about to challenge the object of their righteousness, which is a theological way to say he's about to make us ask the question, what makes me enough? That's what we're talking about. What makes me enough? What completes me? Um, I don't know if you know this, but you have an answer to that question. Now, you might not think about it in those terms. You might not wake up uh, tomorrow morning and go, what makes me enough? Where do I find my righteousness? But we all perpetually have to have an answer for this question. We walk out our answers to this question. So it's, it's when, when I look down, what are my feet standing on that gives my life the most meaning, value, purpose, stability that that anchors me when things get crazy that gives me my sense of worth that's what we're talking about when we're saying something like what makes me enough how do I justify myself this is this is a question that everybody has an answer for religious people have an answer for it irreligious people have an answer for it we all have an answer for it we uh, do you remember the the movie back in the day chariots of fire right the the movie about the runner and and uh, there's this scene where harold abrams one of the runners in the film he's about to take to the track and he says this as he's thinking about going out there he says i i'm realizing i'm going out there and i have 10 seconds to justify my existence 10 seconds, 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. What is he saying? He's saying, when I think about my life and my worth, it is derived from my ability to execute on the track. So he might not have woke up thinking, how do I grab onto my righteousness? But that's exactly what he's doing. And we all do this. And how you answer that question is going to determine for you everything that happens downstream in your life. Because you operate out of it. And we're going to see that there is an answer to that question that will lead you to life. It's going to lead us to life. And there's, an, there's a way to answer that question that's going to lead us to death. And so the stakes are high for us and for Jesus's listeners in, in this story. And Jesus is confronting his audience with this question in a story about two men that typically don't show up in a story together. 
right? So uh, let's get into it and, and look at what the parable says. If you have your Bible, uh, make sure you're in it in Luke 18. We're, we're in verse 10 right now. And he says this. <coughs> Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, so stop there. I, I don't know how that hits you uh, when you read this, but I can just tell you, the folks Jesus was talking to, they would have already been on the edge of their seat. They would have been sucked in. Jesus just took the best human being they know and the worst human being they know, and he put them in the octagon together. And they're like, what's about to happen? They got a bowl of popcorn. They're in, right? He's, he's, I, I love Jesus. He's God. So he's like earth's best storyteller. And, and, and he's, it's amazing. So, so they're on the edge of the sea. But for us, I, that's probably not how we, we come to this moment. Well, for a lot of reasons. One, you've heard this story before. You, you, the Pharisee and the tax collector, if you've been in church at all, you've heard this. And, and because you've heard it before, because there's 2,000 years of distance between us and this moment, uh, and because we're in a church culture, you, you are coming, and I am coming, with preconceived notions about this caste list, right? You, when I, for instance, when I say the word Pharisee, do you, do you generally have a, a positive emotion or a negative one? It's normally negative, right? The thing that comes up is, oh, I don't like that guy. Right, but that is not at all how, how these folks in the first century would have thought about this. Rodney talked about this last week even. But if you were a first century Jew, you would have not, when you heard the word Pharisee, thought villain. You would have thought hero. You would have had a poster of this guy on your wall probably. You'd have trading cards, right, with bubble gum in it. That's what you would do. Uh, the, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, he wrote this about the Pharisees. He said that they were known for, quote, surpassing others in observances of piety and exact interpretation of the laws. You know what that means? That means that they were biblical literalists. They, they took the scripture blood earnest seriously. That, by the way, that's, that's us. That's our camp. If you didn't know that, like that's, that's how we are. Like these would be the guys that are preaching at the TGC conference. You, you'd be texting each other like their sermon podcasts. Like th that's who this camp is. They are orthodox people. Th this is a guy that you would totally trust, biblically literate. He was, uh, he was the good guy. He was Tom Hanks if this was a movie. You feel me? Like he's, we love Tom Hanks. He's the perpetual good. He's never played a bad, he's Walt Disney y'all. Right? He's, 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 he's Fred Rogers hugging little kids. We love Tom Hanks. When they would have heard the Pharisee, they would have thought only positive things. So that's, that's them. And, and we get another cast member in this, and this is the tax collector. So we have our hero, and now we're about to find our villain. And when you think tax collector, again, we don't have one of those per se in our culture. This isn't like an IRS agent, right? There's something else going on. If you are one, you can breathe easy, because I'm about to tear into this guy. A tax collector in Palestine... Uh, would have been likely a Jewish citizen who was employed by the insurgent Roman government. You know, the, the guys who have basically taken over Israel, who Israel hates with all their might, like that. those guys. He works for those guys, though he's one of the guys that they took over. He works for them, and he is now making money from his own people for the bad guys. And what's worse is they were notorious for taking more from folks than they needed, and they were getting rich in the process. That's what scripture tells us. But, so, so they were deeply morally corrupt. You feel that, right? But to add insult to injury, these guys were also, 
ceremonially, un, uh, ceremonially unclean to, to the Jews. Why? Because all day long they're kicking it with the Romans and the Romans are Gentiles. And if you're buddied up with Gentiles, you're unclean. And furthermore, these guys wor- would have worked on the Sabbath. So do you see the problem? Like, not only are you morally reprehensible to me, but I can't even physically be around you or I'll be contaminated. This is what it would feel like to be a tax collector. This is how you would have perceived them. This is how they would have been. So it's, I mean, the dichotomy is huge here. This guy being in the same sentence as the last guy is already kind of kind of scandalous. You see that? So in case you're missing like the, ugh, of this. If, if, you were to, if you were to say this in a modern retelling, you might say something like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a lead pastor and a sex offender. That's what you might say. A man who we look up to spiritually and morally, who we want to be like, and a guy for whom we literally have an iPhone app that tells us where he lives so we can avoid being around him. That's what it would have felt like. Do you see that? This is what they heard, and Jesus is like, in. He has their attention. These two opposite men are at the temple, and he says they're about to pray. So everybody leans in. What are they going to pray? That's what he wants to know. And, and Jesus gives the, uh, the prayers uh, in order of the Pharisees' prayer first. Now, I want you to pay attention to this next part, because uh, this is where the whole sermon hinges in some ways. We learn three things about this man uh, from his prayer, three things that are going to be uh, important to remember uh, by the end. So what was he like? Here's the first thing. He was moral. He was moral. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, if it's possible, we'll stop there. If it's possible for you to take off, you're like, I've heard this a million times, goggles for a minute, do that. Because here is a man that, listen, by every moral standard would qualify to be an elder at Stonegate. You feel me? Like, he checks the boxes. He's sexually pure. He, he doesn't cheat on his wife. He honors his marriage vows. He practices justice toward others, it says. Right? He's not unjust. He's not squashing the helpless. Right? He's, he's uplifting the helpless. He's an advocate for people. He's not an extortioner, which means he doesn't rob folks. He's not a thief. He's not doing those types of things. This is a good man. He's a good man. It feels weird to say that because of how we think about him, but it's true. Sometimes when we read this, we, we immediately want to judge the guy. But uh, let me just ask you, what, wouldn't you want this to be said about you too? Right? Like, wouldn't you want these things to be true of you? Like, if you've never cheated on your spouse in this room, can I tell you how you should feel about that? Glad. You should feel happy. If you don't, that's weird. Don't feel that way. If, if you're not a habitual thief, if you're not stealing stuff from people, you should say, yay, that's a good thing. See, we get it twisted. We're like, oh, he, he, he said that he wasn't these things. It's like, that's awesome. I don't want him to be those. Do you want him to be those things? Do you want to be those things? No, we don't. He, this, was a, this was a good 
man. He was a moral man. File that away. First thing, he was good. Second thing, he was religious. He was religious. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So here is a guy who wasn't, he's not just ethical. He is ethical, but he's not just ethical. This is a guy who, who has kept the religious code, and, and then some. So according to the law of Moses, um, it, was, it was only mandatory for a person to fast. You were only commanded to fast in the Old Testament. Did you know this? One time a year during the Day of Atonement, just one time. That was the only commanded you have to do this fast. This guy fasts twice a week. That's 104 more times than he's being asked to fast in Scripture. Okay? He's, he's exceedingly religious in this. And it says not just that, but, but what? Uh, it says that he gives tithes of all that he gets. Now, Deuteronomy 14 commands a tithe of all the crops. But you know what? That would have taken place by the farmers. The farmers who were gathering their crops, they would have tithed on that, and they would have taken that food, and it would have gone to market. So by the time it wound up at the Pharisee's table, it would have been tithed on. You understand that? And this guy is getting the tithed on food and tithing on the tithed on food. So it's a bonus tithe. There's just extra tithing happening by this guy. He's going, but you get the sense, right? He's going above and beyond. Whatever the category is, he's going to run a mile past it. This guy is deeply religious. Here's a guy who does all the stuff in the book, and then he does more stuff than the stuff in the book says to do. That's, that's who he is. He was moral. He was religious. And now the third thing. Are you ready for the confusing bit? Here's the third thing. He credits God for producing it in him. God, audience, I, subject, thank, verb, you, object. I thank you that I'm not like other men. I attribute this to you. My sexual purity, my moral ethic, my justice, I attribute that to you. When I saw that for the first time, I was so confused. Is anyone confused? That should feel confusing. If I told you I knew a guy who had a deep, moral character who was committed to the commands of scripture and he saw all of that as something that God had produced had wrought in him and not himself would you ever think that guy had a problem you you wouldn't you would not think he had an issue but he does he's he's got earth's biggest issue and this is the glitch in the story, because verse 13 tells us that this man, this man went down to his house not justified, not right with God, not heard by God in prayer. That's, that's what happened with him. So what, the question that's coming up in us is, what is the problem? 
He checks all my boxes. I'm, I'm fresh out of boxes. He's done it all. What Everyone would want to know, why is he not justified? Do you see that? This is it. This is the capital P point. Please pay attention to this. And full disclosure, this changed my life when I saw this. Here it is. Why was he not justified? Because... In the end, he was thankful to God for his goodness, not his goodness. I'm going to say that one more time. Because in the end, he was thankful to God for his goodness, not God's goodness. He thanked God, yes, that he was good. And he refused to let God be good for him. He didn't need God's accomplishments because he already, he had his own accomplishments. Right? God wasn't his only hope. He was his only hope. And, and just because he was grateful to God for it, that doesn't change anything. Can I tell you something? This is, this is terrifying. This is terrifying stuff. Think about it. This means that even if you believe that God himself is the one producing the goodness in your life, if it is your goodness, you are still not good. Even if you're good. How confusing is that? Even if you're obeying, in fact, Jesus is showing us that obeying itself can be a way of running from God. There's a book that I read a few years ago by uh, Flannery O'Connor. It's called Wise Blood. It was her first novel. She wrote it when she was like 29. It's an amazing book. I'd highly recommend it. And in the book, there's a character named Hazel Motes. And Hazel Motes has this existential crisis. He is doing everything he can in his life to get as far away from Christianity as possible. That's really what he's doing in the book. And the narrator gives us insight into an aha moment that he has in the book when he figures out the way that he's going to avoid Christianity. And, And here's what it is. The narrator says that there was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Don't you just want to take a nap? Your head hurts so much. That the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. What, what, are you, what does that mean? If you don't sin, what don't you need anymore? You don't need a savior. You, you don't need a savior if you've got nothing to be saved from. Why would I need a savior? Why don't I just get my act together? I don't need to ask for anything from God. I, I'm, I've got this thing. What a, what a terrifying thought. You see, in the end, the issue is not, am I a good person or am I a bad person? A lot of, a lot of folks want to put the Bible into that category. Say, this is, this is a book about being good and avoiding being bad. And it's not that. The issue is not, am I a good person? Am I a bad person? The issue is, 
Is it my goodness I'm standing on or Christ's goodness? That's the issue in Christianity. And that, I think, is the, is the massive distinction between the Christian worldview, the Christian religion, and every other worldview and religion in the world. Not good or bad, but my good or his good. Now, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, or maybe, maybe you've heard this before and it's just clicking for the first time and you're rightly asking, oh my gosh, is this, is this me? Like, this, this is a distinction I didn't see before. Have I been, am I functionally relying on my goodness instead of Christ? Have I, have I been thinking about this Christian thing as like a good, bad thing and not a my good, his good thing? If that's you, you're right to be asking those questions. Let me just give you a few evidences that you can test yourself by, some, some litmus tests that you can hold up to your life and go like, is, is this what my life looks like? If, uh, okay, so he, here's a few of them. If you're relying on your own goodness instead of Christ, here's a few things that are likely true about you. So let's test ourselves in this. Here's the first thing. Your relationships will tend to be comparative. Your, your relationships will tend to be comparative. Did you notice the Pharisee's prayer? It was entirely oriented in two places. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. It was, it was him in relation to other people. He referenced himself five times in the text. And he gave four other comparisons of other people in the text. His grid is entirely horizontal. See, if it's about human effort, you won't be able to stop yourself from looking at other humans. If it's about human effort, I can only look here. I'm constantly looking here. And, and when you're looking here and you're excelling, others start to seem beneath you, right? I was able to pull myself up. You must be lazy. I don't know. I, I was able to obey. C clearly, you must not care about God as much. I was able to figure this thing out, so maybe it's not that bright, right? That's what rises up in the human heart that, that is relying on their own goodness instead of Christ. We, we look horizontally and we're therefore deeply competitive people. And the point is, it's always about comparison to others because our categories are this way. But you see, a Christian's categories are not this way. Our categories are vertical. See, when it's me compared to you, there's a chance I could feel pretty good about me. But when it's us compared to him, now all of a sudden the playing field's level, right? Because I'm not looking at other people. I'm looking at an infinitely holy God. And all of a sudden I look about as same as you compared to the awesome grandeur of his holiness and righteousness. You see that? So the Christian looks vertical when we compare but the religious person is going to tend to look horizontal. Because they do that, their relationships will devolve and become deeply, deeply comparative. So that's, that's um, sort of litmus test one. Here, here's another uh, thing that may be true of a person that, um, that's relying on themselves instead of God for them. You'll be emotionally poor. You'll be emotionally poor. You know what I mean by that? Think about this. It, if you get your sense of self-worth from your accomplishments, your, your performance, what happens on the day you don't perform? Because that's coming, right? That, that is coming. I was on an airplane uh, like a decade ago and I sat next to this young guy 
and we got to talking, and he asked me about myself, and I ended up talking about uh, the fact that I was a Christian. He said, what does that mean? And the way I summarized it in that moment was I said something like this. Uh, it, It basically means Jesus is my everything, man. And he said, man, that's awesome. We have something in common. I said, oh, you're a Christian? He's like, no, no, I'm not a Christian. I was like, okay. Uh, he says, uh, no, but Jesus is your everything, and, and I'm a, a songwriter. I'm a musician. The guy sitting next to me, and, uh, and that's how I feel about music and songwriting. Songwriting's my everything. Jesus is yours. Songwriting's mine. We got that thing in common. He was trying to relate, you know, to me, <laughs> and, uh, and I remember just turning and asking him. I said, um, can I ask you a question? He says, yeah. What happens if you wake up tomorrow with writer's block? And he just went, hmm. It was a very awkward uh, plane ride after that, uh, flying next to him. <laughs> but, but do you see the problem? He, he realized that he was grounding his sense of worth in something that was really fickle, his ability to like write good songs. This, this guy was just one bad songwriting day away from losing his joy. It's not grounded in anything stable. For for me, this manifested in my 20s like this. Most of my 20s, I've told you guys this before, I dealt with low-grade depression. I was a Christian. I trusted in Christ to save me. But functionally on the day-to-day, what I thought gave my life meaning, worth, value, significance, where I thought my, my righteousness was coming from practically was my ability to read the Bible every day. My, uh, my, my prayer life to God. How often was I doing that? My evangelism, was I sharing the gospel with enough folks? If I wasn't sharing the gospel with enough folks, can I tell you, I was undone. I was undone a lot in my 20s. It was, it was a, a dark time for me emotionally because I grounded my joy, my emotional stability on something that was so fickle, so cracked and craggy. It wouldn't wouldn't allow me consistency. But see, the only way that a person can really get consistency is when we land on something that doesn't change. It's when we stand on something that doesn't move. And that's exactly what the, the Christian gospel offers, and that's exactly what religion doesn't. When we look to ourselves for our worth, we are emotionally poor people. We lack a a steadiness. Here's the third thing to consider, and maybe the saddest. If this is you, if, if, if you're somebody who relies on your own goodness, your own sense of self worth to, to be okay, your relationship with God will be about leverage, not love. It'll be about leverage, not love. You see, if, if my, if it's my performance that unlocks God's love for me, if that's the thing that's gonna make him for me, then the better I perform, the more of that stuff from him I should get, right? So we begin to put God in our debt. He's not the love of my life, he's more like a slot machine that I play. And I take my good works and I put them in the machine and I pull the lever. And if I put enough of those works in and pull the lever enough times, I'll get the things I want, right? Because it's, it's solely based on how good I do, right? So I have to do enough good for him to give me the things I want, whether that be his love, 
whether that be the things I'm praying for, I'm dependent not on him, but on my own efforts to, to sort of be the key that turns the engine of God in my life. And that's not love, that's leverage. Can you imagine a marriage working like that? Honey girl, I just want to tell you, I have done a ton for you and uh, you owe me, right? That's, that's gross, right? That, that is not, you don't want to be in a situation like that. It's not love, that's leverage. God, God isn't a slot machine to work so you can get a big payout. He's a father to be loved. But we can't see him like that if we rely on our doing. You, you feel me on this? This is serious stuff, isn't it? And you might hear all this and you might go, I don't want any of that. Gosh, what? What needs to change? What do I need to do? Like, what, what do I need to bring to the table so that's not said about me? I don't want to be in that camp. If you're feeling those things, yes, that's right. This parable should be producing those types of things in us. And thankfully, Jesus isn't just in this parable highlighting a problem. He's providing the solution. He's doing both of those things. And the answer is to that question that's coming up in us. There is something, only one thing, that you can produce, that if you come to God with it, he will justify you. So get a pen. Here's the thing. That thing is nothing. If you show up with that, you're good. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Get a picture of this guy. Standing far off. Commentators tell us that that would have likely placed him probably somewhere on the outer edges of the court of the Gentiles, which is about as far away from things as you could be and still be considered in the proximity of the temple. He is far off in a corner and he is just, there. he is filled with nothing but shame for his sin. He sees God as so great, he can't even bring himself in close proximity to this guy. He, he won't even lift up his eyes because his heart is so pierced through with grief over his sin. He's beating his chest. This is a picture of a broken man. And all he can squeak out in his prayers, this one little one sentence prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He's got no record to show. He's got no one he's comparing himself to, but God, he's totally and completely broken. And Jesus looks at that empty, broken, hopeless man. And he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is, this is what humility is. It is us bringing nothing to God but our need. When we bring nothing to God but our need, that is called a posture of humility. And so the glitch in our story is that the, the least righteous person in the room becomes the only righteous person in the room. There's the glitch. 
because he was the only one who could see that he, he had nothing to bring to the table. Do you see that? He looked down at his hands and he was like, there's nothing there. I've got no offering for you. I haven't done the things I ought and I've done all the things I shouldn't. So all I'm coming with is nothing. And when you have nothing, Christ gives you everything. Listen, because there's enough people in this room that this is probably not true for everyone in here. You, you may be bringing something to him, thinking it's an act of worship, thinking that I must be doing God a big favor because look, I did well this week. Look, God, look what I've done. Can I tell you, if your hands aren't empty, he's unimpressed. He wants lowly, humble people. And those people are the ones who, when they look down, they see nothing in their hands. It doesn't mean we go out and, and sin to get all the stuff out. That's not the point. The point is that we recognize that even our good works are like filthy rags before God's infinite holiness. That's what we're doing. I remember I, I was at coffee uh, not too long ago uh, with uh, a guy, and he, was, he had just come out of Mormonism. And he was wrestling with Christianity. He, I, I've told you this story before. He was, uh, he was wanting to, um, to become a Christian, and he was taking steps in that direction. And, and we were having coffee because he was just trying to sort this stuff out. He loved Mormonism because, in his words, it gave me something to do, he said. And, and he was coming to Christianity, and, he's, and this whole like grace through faith alone thing was, was disturbing to him. And he was telling me, man, I'm trying to become a Christian. I really am. Uh, I, I'm praying a, a lot and like I'm, I'm detailing every sin I can think of and I'm bringing it to God and I'm confessing it and I'm, I'm repenting like all the time, Jimmy. And for whatever reason, like I just don't feel like anything's changed in me. I don't know what's going on. And I, and I just stopped him as he was talking. I remember saying, bro, there is one thing that you haven't repented of. He said, what? You haven't repented of repenting. Now, I know that sounds weird, but, but what do I mean by that? You see, this guy was looking to even his repentance as a work that he could bring to God to say, look what I've done. I've done the right, I, right things. I've, I've turned the right cogs in the wheel that will get you to love me. I've repented. Where are his eyes? His eyes are on him. In that moment, he saw, my eyes are turned here. And what Christianity is inviting us to do is lift our chin and look up to God. Get our eyes off ourselves and realize we need him. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's Christianity. He trusted Christ that day. He got baptized here a, a year or so ago. That's how people come into the fold. And that's how people stay in the gate. We come with nothing. And Christ fills our hands with everything. And you know what the everything he fills our hands with? His righteousness. That's the beautiful thing about Christianity. It's not just that he says, okay, you're good. It's that 2,000 years ago, he lived the life that you've always wanted to live but never could live then he died for your sins. And as we come with an act of faith to him, trusting him, he trades us. He gives us that record we've been wanting. The one that we've been looking to in ourselves, he gives us his. We get his forever. And some of you, you might be here this morning and you're like, my hands have been full. 
Maybe you've, you've never trusted in Christ before. Maybe you have, but you're realizing like I did in my 20s, man, I have filled up these hands again with stuff. Do you know what today is for you? Today is the day where you let those go and you grab onto the cross. You need Jesus. Your works will not stand in the day of judgment. If all you're looking to is you, then on the day of judgment, all you will have is you. And you don't just want you that day. You want him. Trust him today. For others of you, you you may be here and you may be like, my life is a mess. If you saw my week, you would turn in shame. I know my hands are empty. My hands have been empty for a long time. But for you, your hands have been empty and instead of clinging to the cross, you've clung to despair. And you've gone, maybe there's no hope for me. Maybe this is just how it is. I'm just a depressed person who just can't get my act together. And let let me tell you, your hands are empty for a reason. They're they're empty so you can grab onto Jesus. This morning, that's for you too. Like if you're you're in despair, if you feel like this uh, this, uh, tax collector and you're beating your chest, beat your chest and then say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He will fill your hands with his righteousness and you will go down to your house justified. What an awesome thing that would be. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. God, I want that so badly for this church. I don't want us to be a people who are deceived into thinking that what Christianity is is mostly just a good-bad dichotomy. That we just need to be on the good side of things. God, would you help us see that that's not the great divide, good-bad, but the divide is me or you, God. God, would we be people of the cross, people who who despair of our own goodness and beg for a better one. And Lord, we're we're just wanting to say, like the tax collector, God, will you be merciful to us? We're the sinner. If that's not breaking our hearts this morning, Holy Spirit, break our hearts. What a terrifying thing to realize at the end of your life, your prayers haven't been heard because you're not his. What a terrifying thing at the end of your life to expire, stand before God and realize all the things I filled my arms with were my things and not you. God, strike fear in our heart and show us the beauty of Jesus and his offering for us. God, bring, bring someone in this room from death to life and, and, and wake up other Christians in this room who, who, like me for so many years, have been holding on to the wrong set of things, have been looking to the wrong set of things to make me feel okay before you. Help us, God. Help us. We need you. Lord, we bless you. We love you. Thanks for being so unlike all the false gods of the world. Thank you for for humbling yourself 
to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that forever you would be exalted as a people embracing you would see you as their only hope. We love you and we give you thanks and we sing to you now in the name of Jesus.